Welcome to another edition of the Alan Smithy Podcast here on Pro Video Coalition. We are here with another recording, and Katie is not with us this week. Katie is on assignment. And while Katie can never be replaced, we had an interview that we were going to schedule with Stacey Chayette, who works at Netflix. And we're going to talk about careers in post-production technology and production technology and kind of careers in technology was an idea we've been throwing around for our second interview. And Stacy's a good friend and she has a lot of info to share with us. So we're going to be chatting with her. She's here not in place of Katie, but she is here for the duration of the, of the recording. Um, so we've got someone else with us. Stacy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. And like you said, nobody can replace the great Katie Henson, uh, but I am honored to sub in for her while she is on assignment. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us. And of course, Michael Thomas is here. Michael, welcome back as always. You're welcome. Good to hear your voices again. Uh, settle in, Stacy. It's going to be a fun ride. All yeah. Right. So as we were telling Stacy, we try to hit out you know, a little couple of news items before we get into our main topic of conversation. And I think we have to mention the strikes coming to an end. I mean, I think it's safe to say they've come to an end. Uh, the actor's strike was the last one to, what's the word, sign off on the deal. And I don't know if it's been completely finalized yet, but Stacey, you're you're right there in the heart of what's going on in Hollywood. What, what are you seeing strike-wise? Yeah, I think the the good news is that productions are starting to come back to life, whether they have started filming already or will be filming in the near future. I'm really excited to see people back to work, the ecosystem coming back to life. I have friends that have been out of work for, uh, you know, a good seven months. You're right, the, the deal has not been ratified yet, to my knowledge. I'm not that close to it. I don't know necessarily the details of the deal, but really happy to see a lot of people back to work. Yeah, we'll talk in a minute once we get the interview specifically about what you do. But I think it's, it's safe to say that you're in and around shoots and sets and you just sort of see the general uh, hubbub of production in Hollywood. So it would make sense that like if you're seeing sort of things start to bubble back up and it feels like it's a good omen, I guess. Is that the safe way to yes. say it? Yes, absolutely. I think it is, you know, there's signs of life. And I really do think everybody's really happy to be back to work. I don't think anybody likes sitting around. No, no, they don't. I don't think we, we can minimize the the impact here uh, for folks who aren't in the kind of the heart of media entertainment. It's not just screen actors, right? It's everything downwind of that, everything that takes uh, that it takes to run a set, all the personnel. But further removed from that are companies who make software, right? Or hardware that caters to folks in the media and entertainment realm that are used on union productions. So you, uh, there were a lot of software companies that you know were laying people off and had clients that said, look, we can't pay for this software because we're not making any money because there's a strike going on. So this trickles down, obviously, to a lot of other facets. And uh, I don't think any of us could be any happier that one of the prefaces of this ending. I think the thing we do need to keep eyes on, and because this is so new, I think we've read the summaries, but what is the exact verbiage laid out in the new contract? And I think that the big thing, and there's been a lot of press on with this, especially with uh, folks like Justine Bateman, uh, AI, right? AI has really become the focal point of these strikes, not to mention residuals, but AI. And I think Justine made a, a great statement, which is, 
when we talk about AI, the union was basically negotiating with cannibals, right? The folks who are going to eat you, we're not, we're discussing how you're going to eat us, whether you're going to boil us, whether you're, where you're, what limb you're going to cut off when uh, she says she doesn't want us to have that conversation at all. We shouldn't even be entertaining the fact that AI is going to be used. And I think we're, the horses are the barn. At that point, I think that AI is not going away. There needs to be restrictions put in place. There needs to be compensation put in place. But to shut the door and say, you can't use this, uh, I think is a fool's errand. And I, I, I don't think that's going to fly. That's a great analogy. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there are reasons to be uh, what I like to call an absolutist and, and say no AI. But I think that the train has left the station. And I really like to go back to your earlier point about this affecting more than just actors or writers, which are, you know, who initiated strikes for sure. But this is going to affect everybody. We have IATSE uh, renegotiating next year as well. And and to your point that it, it affects the entire ecosystem of vendors, software, hardware vendors, camera vendors, everybody. So I think that people are aware that some of these things needed to be figured out and, and are hoping that whatever is in the, this verbiage can really help hopefully pave the way, but it's not going to necessarily stop people from, from using AI to make what could be a really interesting new wave of art if we use it correctly. But that's the key, right, is, is using it correctly. I've always wondered, not just with this strike, but just strikes in general, sometimes when you see sort of some stats and, and they're usually always rough stats, but about, you know, this entity is striking, which may be X number of people literally on strike, but then all the other people affected underneath that when whatever entity it is goes on strike, so many other people can't work just like is happening here. What happened in Hollywood? I'd love to see, I don't know if anybody has ever tried to pull those numbers together of, you know, with the actors and the writers on strike, how many people that weren't actors and weren't writers were literally out of work for those six or seven, seven months. You know, I, I think when you see numbers like that, it really puts us strike into perspective. So yeah, hopefully things get back to normal. So that's, that's the big news of the month. The other bit of news, Michael, I know you probably have some thoughts on this. You and I both is because uh, we've, we've been watching the Avid acquisition uh, from afar. And um, but as of a couple of weeks before you're hearing this, the actual deal was finalized with the private equity company whose name escapes me. S was STG. STG, which those people who've been using Avid for a while will probably get a kick out of the fact that their name is Symphony, right? Symphony Technology Group. And oh, is are it? you serious? <laughs> yeah. That's, I don't think I knew that. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, it's apropos. They would have bought Avid. And then and right after the announcement that it was finalized went through, the Avid Avid CEO, Jeff Rosica, he's gonna be stepping down at some point in the future. Michael, what do you what's your thoughts on that? Well, first off, it's a shame. Jeff, whom I know on a personal level, is great. He was invigorating for the company when he assumed the position in 2018 after kind of a, a bumpy road with his predecessor. And yes. if you look at the stock price, right, he was able to grow it from, I think, uh, around $4 uh, around that time period when he came in in, in 18 to uh, at a high point of almost 30 right before the uh, announcement of, of being acquired by STG. And so he's done a great job. It's not uncommon at all during mergers, acquisitions, moving between public and private to bring in new leadership. And a lot of times it's not a reflection on previous leadership. It's just that 
new sugar daddy wants to run things the way they want to run things. And like I said, it's not uh, unheard of. It's going to suck because Jeff, I think, had the hearts and minds of the folks at Avid. He's well-respected in the industry, well-respected at Avid. So I don't think it's it's odd that, that he's taking an early, early retirement. The fact that he is staying on to help mentor, I guess, would be a great phrase to use. The next CEO, I think, is great. Uh, I think that that shows some solidarity instead of saying, you know, mic drop him out. I am obviously concerned about what the future of Avid is once new leadership is installed, but we'll we'll have to see. Avid has said that through the end of this year, there shouldn't be any layoffs or anything like that. I don't know what will happen next year. Obviously, everyone's concerned about will, you know, the company split off Pro Tools. Will this part of the company go sell be sold here? Will this part of the company be sold there? We don't know. But Jeff, as I said, is a fantastic person. And I firmly believe that what he's doing is, you know, in the best interests of company and not just getting out while the getting's good. Yeah, absolutely. He, he he is a good guy. And I think he came in at the right time when the previous CEO, there was all kinds of stuff going on there. And he did. He, he really turned the ship around for quite a while. So we wish him luck. We do know him. And, um, you know, perhaps he goes off and enjoys his retirement, which is uh, nothing all wrong with that. The various articles said that he's taking an early retirement from Avid. I wonder if that means early retirement from Avid, meaning he may work somewhere else. I don't know. Mm, possibly. Yeah. He's, he's not, he's, he's a young guy. He's still got years of work ahead of him. Yeah. Yeah. And because just, again, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a smart guy. And I would hate to see the industry lose him as a voice. So I'll be interested to see where he lands if he does. Absolutely. The only other news I had on the docket uh, was we saw Apple release new MacBook Pros with the M3, new M3 chip. We went M1, M2, M3. Uh, I believe they're putting some iMacs, but the MacBook Pros, I think, is a big one that, that people in our space would be interested in. I have a review unit, and I wrote up a review on it, kind of ran through some of my benchmark of uh, post-production tests and renders and things like that. And uh, while I haven't been able to do a ton with it, it's a nice machine. It's fast. It's you know does those things that you know us Apple users really really like. Um, I don't have much to, you know, other, other than that, we'll post a link in the article at show notes. Stacey, are you in a in sort of a Mac world or a PC world in what in, in what you do? I've been mostly Mac based for, oh, I guess, a good 10 years now. I have an M1 MacBook Pro myself. Really, you know, that jump from Intel to Silicon was, was huge, I think. I haven't gotten to see the, the M3. It feels like like most Mac products, it's, oh, I just bought one. Do I need to <laughs> get another one? <laughs> yeah. Love them, but uh, not going to buy a new one every year. This is a difficult uh, M3, interestingly, because I bought an M2 MacBook Pro probably in January of this year when it was pretty new. I bought a 14-inch, and then here come the M3s. And I've seen various theories on why there's such a short release cycle between this M2 and M3 MacBook Pros. Be it bottom line, need something out for Christmas, whatever. But, you know, I think that the speed in which these they're bringing these chips along is really, I don't know, Michael, like you, you in the computing world, like it's, it feels like they are really integrating, bringing out these new versions of the M chips really, really fast. Is that is it faster than normal for a company like this? Or, or what do you... 
it is a bit faster. If you were to look at, you know, the Intel chips uh, or what AMD is doing, typically there's a longer cycle of these families before new ones. But I almost want to liken this to Resolve. And there's there's a point here. Uh, when uh, Blackmagic bought DaVinci Resolve and released it, they were making leaps and bounds every time they released a new version. And there was a lot of industry chatter about, look at how much they're innovating. Look at why is everyone else slower? Well, when you start kind of at a ground level, it's easy to make larger strides. And with the M chip being new, I think it's easier. I'm not downplaying what Apple's been been able to do, but I, it, I think it's been easier to innovate and build upon these and make larger leaps because it, you're starting from a, a new process, essentially, brand, a brand new product. So I think we'll eventually see it slow down, but it's not uncommon to release things like this as you're making these initial leaps and bounds. I have read the M3s now, you know, complete transparency. I haven't gotten my hands on them, but I've read uh, several articles and reviews from some reputable sources that have said that the M3 uh, is faster, but it's not mind-blowing, right? I think the top-of-the-line M2 processor, I think, was still outperforming a, a mid-level M3, if memory serves. I think Jeff Greenwell did a great write-up on this as well. The performance increases weren't astronomical. But, yeah. you know, those who those of us who are in cult of Mac, right, those of us who are in uh, who are, are married to the OS, so to speak. Yeah, we're going to wait for the latest and greatest. And then we're going to buy it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, th I think the way they're doing the chips, you, you'll have like the pro and then the Macs and potentially the ultra in the studio that there's so many iterations of them now. It, is, it gets a little bit confusing and only the Mac fanatic will be on an M2 Mac Studio Ultra and decide to go buy the M3 Mac Studio Ultra because, you know, they've got money burning a hole in their pocket. Like if you move from Intel to the Apple Silicon at this point, and you've got an Ultra or even like a um, a Max in your studio or your or your laptop, then you're probably good for a couple of generations. So enjoy what you have, um, unless you just have more money to burn. I am very curious, and I, I I plan on reaching out after the first of the year, a Five Things episode I'm working on, on how many Mac Pros are being sold now versus four, five, six years ago. Now that we have the external bus speed on almost any Mac uh, computer we don't need machines with slots, right? We no longer need to have a, a Blackmagic PCIe card. We can go with an external device. There's only a few companies out there that are still making PCIe cards that are needed in our industry, like Pro Tools, right? Uh, you yeah. have the expansion cards for lower latency. That's something you can't really do as well externally. But I bet we're seeing a trend where the Mac Ultras, right? The, the smaller ones. The studio, Mac's the studios, Mac studio. Thank you. The studios. Yeah. We're going to see those becoming kind of the norm for mid to high level post-production because you simply don't need the expansion that you're going to find in a Mac Pro. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to kind of get the data on that to see if that's where the industry is going. Yeah, I would say in my previous job at a post-production facility, we loved those, you know, they were coming in as I was going out of the company, but we loved those studios because you could just fit so much more into your rack. You could fit maybe three or four studios to every large Mac Pro. And then all of a sudden you're, booting, you know, more, you have more artist ability, more flexibility with a ton of things. So I, I am curious about that as well. You know, that is a great segue into our uh, discussion with Stacy, where we want to talk about careers in technology, post-production technology, production technology, 
and that kind of thing. Because I think often when we talk about media creation, whether you're working in Hollywood, you're working on episodic television, reality shows, things like that, we often think about the artistic side of things with, you know, d- directors creating, crafting these wonderfully amazing movies or editors, you know, taking all that footage from months and months of shooting out in the, you know, the Bering Sea and making stories out of it. But to, to do the artistic side of things, there's a lot of technology involved, both in production and post-production that has to happen before anyone can be creative in a sense to bring us that, that final product. And that's kind of what we want to talk about is there's a lot of careers in involved in and around that type of thing. And Stacy, Katie did recommend you for this chat and thank you for joining us about this. So why don't start us off by telling a little bit like, how did you get started and how did you make a transition if there was a specific transition into a career that is really focused on technology around production and, and, and post? Sure. Well, it started, you know, growing up wanting to be an artist. I went into college and and throughout my college experience was going to be a scripted editor. That's what I wanted to be. But I also was at, at the time, it was the precipice of digital filmmaking. It was the transition from tape to tapeless. And I had the opportunity at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, to be one of the first classes that worked with tapeless technology and had to get an understanding of media management, how to deal with files, how to process the files. And that translated into my first internship, which was at one of the first red camera houses called Off Hollywood. Um, oh, yeah. They jumped at the chance, right, at, at saying, oh, wait, you, you'll understand this file-based workflow. Nobody, you know, it was 2009. They There were like 20 reds out in the world or something like that. And, uh, and there so was, I, and a red camera is all about technology. Like it is oh, yeah. everything from like the innards of the camera to the workflows. It is Hollywood technology, um, you know, bar none. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of things about it that were very technical and they've done a great job over the years trying to uh, simplify it, I think, a, a bit. And you, um, at the beginning of it, it took a lot of horsepower and computers to to process their media, and, and they've refined it over the years. As, and as computers and processes have gotten better, and including the Silicon Max, it's a lot easier to process these big files. But even after that experience at Off Hollywood, I thought, oh, no, I still want to be an editor. So I did a couple things. I went and and tried some assistant editing, but it was more in the unscripted space and wanted to get in the scripted space. So I went to a company called Bling that was Digital Daily's company, knowing that I had the media management and organizational experience. So I got into into scripted dailies and thought that that would be a stepping stone for learning more about scripted editorial and making some contacts. I think working at a facility is another great way to make some contacts and and to get into an artistic role. So, you know, technology can be a stepping stone, but I soon realized that it was not my stepping stone. It was 
where I wanted to stay. I, I uh, found it really exciting to deal with the challenges, the workflow challenges and the technology, work on multiple shows at once and not necessarily sit in front of a, a NLE all day long. No offense <laughs> to, to folks that oh. do that. I, it's still, I do still miss it from time to time, <laughs> uh, being more on the creative side of things. But I definitely like the adventure of dealing with technology and solving creative technology problems. What what was the aha moment? When you know, normally when you talk to creatives or even folks who move from one job to another, or when they have this kind of ah, a moment, right? Was there a moment where like someone's barking orders at you, like behind you, and you just said, "No, no, I'm out. This is not what I'm doing." Did did you have an aha moment? That is a great question. Um, I think the answer is no. If you don't have, if that doesn't pop right I, into your right? head, it doesn't pop into me. But yeah. I think I will say this: what took me to another level of feeling confident that I was on the right path was going and supervising dailies in a foreign country, and and knowing that folks were trusting me to figure things out and just taking a moment in that foreign country and saying, I know what I'm doing. I, you know, we've prepared for this moment. That really gave me, it was an eye-opening experience, not just for work, but in life. I hadn't really been out of the country and there I was in, in Italy, you know, in Europe and, and thinking, wow, that look at where this job has taken me. I never would have expected it it, it to do that. So while it may not have necessarily been an aha moment, it was a moment that I found confidence and, and felt more comfortable in my choices for sure. That's a great life lesson for some of our younger listeners that if you can take those opportunities to travel, you know, even if you're working, you certainly will learn and see things that a different perspective that you don't get just by, you know, by being in, in, in Hollywood, your whole, your whole career Absolutely. or Nashville where I am or New York or something like that. Yeah. And I, and I was in New York city for, for years before uh, I transplanted to Los Angeles earlier this year. But yeah, to your point, it's great to get outside, I think, and, and deal with different cultures, different people and see that there's multiple ways to do things. And if you just work together, Beautiful things can happen. Nice. Technology can be really daunting if that's not where your, your proclivities lie. So uh, do you have recommendations if for folks who, who are saying, you know what, I, I like the logic behind the creativity. I like the logic. I like the tech behind the art. What things or where do you think folks can start to learn to see if that's where they want to pursue a career? That's a great question. For technologists, it's very disparate, right? It's, it's just get... Get as much experience with different things as you can. One of the toughest but most rewarding things about my career has been that we get to play in a lot of different things. We get to, you know, I work with production and post-production technology. So I, I may not be an expert at everything, but I know enough about things to be able to point people in the right direction. At what, who do we need to talk to to get things done? We work on those problems too. And there, 
there's a lot, right? There's there's some folks, including myself, that have said, uh, you know, post-production folks know more about production than production folks know about post. I think that it's changing as, you know, it becomes more accessible to do things like editing. But I do think my background in post-production helps me get further up the chain so that I can explain to people what is happening to their media later on that they may not have thought about. What, what happens up chain really does affect what goes on down the chain. So learning about the whole pipeline, again, you don't have to be an expert in everything, but learning about how, uh, you know, the cause and effect of, you know, the life cycle of media production certainly helps. My God, I love that. I, I want that on a plaque. Uh, if there's one thing that, that I've always felt is that a lot of folks nowadays will look for a technical solution to the one problem they're working on, as opposed to thinking, why do I have this problem to begin with? Right? Oh, what yes. surrounds this that's causing these issues? Maybe I should learn that. And the, instead of, I just need to tick this box of fixing this one problem. So I absolutely love the fact of learning the pipeline and not just what your job is, but the job of the person you're handing off to and the job of the person who's giving you content. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I think that that brings me to a little bit of what my current job is at Netflix as a production technologist. It's it's going into these conversations with productions. I work with Netflix original productions and sometimes they'll ask a question but the the real question is not being asked right there's the question underneath the question and it's my job to figure out what that question underneath the question is to figure out why they're asking the question they are because there's there's usually something behind it and that you know they are coming at it from needing to solve one particular problem and we will solve that problem but there's usually some other context that can be provided to figure out what the real crux of the issue is. So when you come in as a production technologist, are you already armed with, here are kind of the Netflix's best practices or like a checklist of things you do? And and also, I think this would be a great time because I have problems struggling with this, is the differences between how your expertise would be used for a Netflix original versus something that is being licensed or just picked up in another way. Yeah, I think Netflix being as big as it is, you know, has a lot of different ways to acquire media. My job, I deal mostly with the Netflix originals, the ones that they commission and, and work on. We have a bunch of best practices. Previously, in, in previous years, like 2017, when, when originals were first coming up out of Netflix, there were a, a lot of uh, deliverables that were required in things. And, and Netflix has done a great job at, at paring it down and saying like, we want to give filmmakers the freedom and flexibility to do what they want to do while acknowledging that we want to give members a great experience. So we we do have things like an approved camera list, but it is not, you know, meant to limit anybody. It's more about making sure that productions are able to, to give the best product to our users. Uh, so we do have, you know, we have these best practices that we provide and that I'm happy to go through. I do have, you know, checklists for my own sake, not necessarily for Netflix sake, but I think it's more about knowing the type of content that you're working on, the type of production that you're working on. My colleagues on the nonfiction space might approach something a little bit differently than that I do that, that I cover the scripted 
productions. There's some flexibility there in, in how different verticals deal with things. I would love to dive into your to production technologist as a as sort of a job description because that is your <laughs> in your job description is production technologist. And I think that all, people often think about post and production technology. They're okay. They're a camera assistant, so they've got a, there's, there's technology in and around all these digital cameras these days. An assistant editor is dealing with computers and files and hard drives, and it's tons of technology there. An engineer is perhaps working in the facility or working at a you know a sporting event because there's a huge infrastructure to bring live sports you know to the world, which Netflix is doing now with mm-hmm. you know the uh, was it the golf the F one golf um, Netflix Cup yes go streaming Net- now yeah so so the, an engineer has a lot of technology going on there but like if your job description is a production technologist are you uh, researching on your computer most of the time are you visiting sets and watching how people are. Um, you know, working their daily's workflow? Are you on the phone, you know, on Zoom calls all day long talking to people about, you know, wait, no, that's a terrible idea with what you're thinking you're going to do on that shoot? Or or like, what what is your, okay, what's the day-to-day like? All of the above. I like the points that you brought up. And I like to say that production technologist is, a, is such a broad term that can mean different things to different companies. I, I think, you know, Katie will tell you this as well, that production technologist might mean something slightly different at her studio versus my studio and have different backgrounds. And I think what Netflix does as well as bring people with different backgrounds together so that we make a team that can work together. I, we have one team member of mine that has a background in animation and visual effects and has more of an understanding of renderings and server farms and things like that, where my background has been more about assistant editing and dailies processing and producing, where there might be others that have more of an engineering background or an IT background to set up servers and things like that. For, for Netflix, the role was envisioned more on the actual technology that creatives use during a production. So that falls into cameras, the NLEs, the uh, software, you know, the grading software, the delivering software, like a color front transcoder, uh, mastering software. Certainly we get into server setups and storage as well. So yeah, it's keeping up with all of those things checking in with productions to see if they uh, need help sourcing certain gear. Netflix has, at any given time, hundreds of productions going on at once. Each production is responsible for for their own setup. There are, you know, guidelines that we have, but really it's up to them and we can help them navigate if they are, you know, there are some teams, of course, that are more technical than others and say, oh, oh, we got it. We don't we don't need assistance. But then there are others that say, we really don't know how to do X. Can you help us? Whether that it could be, you know, streaming from set or streaming from the edit bay, figuring out that a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of dailies workflow calls <laughs> will have uh, visual effects workflow calls as well, making sure like anywhere, anytime there's a, a a change of the media between different teams, 
We like to have these conversations to make sure the teams are talking to each other. It's very easy to just send your media in an email and say, here you go. But productions run smoother if everybody gets in the same room together and says, this is what the plan is. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like you... um you often have to get your hands dirty on the technology. You often have to be a, uh, a facilitator to get people to communicate with each other. And I think it's safe to say you all you have to be a lifelong learner in a position like that because technology constantly changes. So if you're not a type of person who likes to you know, learn about new stuff and read and understand and ask questions, being a, um, a technologist of any kind is probably potentially not the job for you and be a people person because you're constantly dealing with probably all kinds of types of people from the creatives to the prima donnas to just, you know, lowly assistants who have to, you give them marching orders and they got to figure stuff out because you can't do everything yourself. Michael, did you have something to say to that? Well, first I was going to say all the lowly assistants are going to be burning pitchforks outside your house there, Scott. Lowly assistants. Jeez. <laughs> hey, they I, I spent many years as a lowly assistant. Wow. I would, assistants are, are as important as, you know, they get a lot of the work done that everybody else doesn't want to do. Don't mm -hmm. trip on your shoelaces while you backpedal, Scott. <laughs> the the something right that I want I wanted to bring up, and I by no means want to minimize the role of a technologist, right? Because it's something I do as a career. But I know that the market for getting a job as a creative can be stifling. There can be anytime you apply for an editing job, there could be a hundred different people with their own resumes and their own connections, etc. But I kind of wanted to, to ask you, Stacy, that do you feel that becoming a maybe an entry level technologist that that could be used as a foothold to maybe get a job as a creative? 100%. Um, I have seen it, seen it happen with folks that I've worked with on, on dailies crews, go on and, and decide the opposite that I decided of, you know, instead of saying, oh, I want to stay here, saying, no, I want to do assistant editing and getting those connections. Same with folks that have, I known that worked at an Avid Rental companies setting up avids and things like that and making connections and then either getting a job as a post PA or a coordinator after that and making, you know, so there's abilities, I think, as a technologist to make the connections. And to, to your point and, and Scott's point, the role of a technologist is a connector. Sometimes it's difficult to explain to folks outside of M&E <laughs> what exactly a, an M&E technologist does. So I like, I, you know, it's a, I like to call it a consultant role or connector. Sometimes you're, you're the translator. You're explaining the technology to folks who, who are not technical. And those skill sets can be translated into a lot of different things. So if you, if it is a creative path that you want to go down, I do think that there's plenty of skills that you would learn as a technologist. I can echo that uh, as well. Uh, there have been plenty of companies I've worked with uh, or worked at where there were things like desktop integration, right, where folks are hired to build the machines for facilities, editing machines, or build the color machines, or to even go and pull cable, right? J uh, mm -hmm. And just getting in there and getting to know the people, the clients that the integrator is already working with, and being a reliable person to answer technical questions, you end up then hearing about openings,
or maybe new a new product was picked up and they were looking for talent. You have your finger on the pulse a bit more than someone who's just outside waiting for a group, uh, a post in a Facebook group or a Craigslist post or a LinkedIn post. So knowing the kind of technical portion also makes you, I think, more valuable of an employee because you're not just there mashing buttons, right? You can effectively troubleshoot some of your own issues. And I think that makes you just even more of a valuable asset than a purely a creative person. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are, and, you know, there are opportunities, like, like I said, as you know, whether it's an avid rental or a desktop integrator or post-production facility, they have these these roles that that may be a post production uh, assistant role or an entry level engineer role, they may not be called technologist necessarily, but they are roles that will help you get your foot in the door in a technical way and get connected with creatives as well as technologists. I think that that kind of was a question I was wanting to ask you about is um, you know how would someone who and I say this with all the love of my heart. I've met some assistant editors before who are not very creative. And many of them will, will readily say like, look, I don't want to be an editor. I'm not a creative person. I don't want to think about how to build stories, but I love technology. I love computers. I love figuring out like, you know, syncing all this, figuring out the problems with all this footage. Like that's something they really enjoy doing. And that is a very technology focused thing. Um, someone who who doesn't want to necessarily be like, a computer engineer, as as assistant editors often are, what sort of things should people be, um, someone be looking at if they wanted to grow into a role as a technologist, you know, kind of doing what you're doing, Stacey? Is this, is this you know, how do you formulate your college career if, you're kind of, if you kind of want to, want to take that path? Oh, goodness. I don't know. I think a, a lot myself and a lot of my friends that it fell, in, fell into this uh, didn't necessarily use this as a career you know, path from a college level. I think that's something that, that I've talked to a couple of, of communities about that I'm involved with of, of how do we get word out to that level to high school students, to college age students, that this is a career that there, you know, I think there is a lot of emphasis in film school on the big roles, the writer, director, actor, editor, and sound, right? There, there aren't necessarily like you might find out what, what a best boy is, but they don't necessarily tell you all of the support staffs and all of the, the, what all of the credits mean. (laughs) Right. Um, and I think it's still evolving. I think there are organizations that are are working towards figuring that out. I think there are many paths. There are, you could come at it from, I love movies, but I'm very technical and I'm good at engineering and math and go get a, an engineering degree. You could get software development, I think is huge. One thing I, I'm attempting to learn now is python i think coding is, is very valuable skill but you said, having you, you can say that again coding is a very is valuable, very skill, valuable for skill your youngsters out there yes oh man yes i've seen like uh you know 10 year olds coding better <laughs> than i can and i think that's i think it's good that we that students learn that stuff cuz it will make their lives easier but there's other paths as well. The path that I took of, of, you know, assistant editing, but then producing, being a technical producer is what what I like to call it. And it's 
working side by side with the engineering folks, not necessarily having the understanding and nitty gritty of the electronics, but being able to work side by side with them and say, hey, what what is it that you're doing? Can you explain it to me? While also being able to facilitate on the producing side, you know, just that's the communication, that's the scheduling and facilitation. So that's another route as well. Is it safe to say that a any job description that has technologist in it, that's a relatively new thing. Like, you know, we're, we're old enough to remember analog tape. You know, some of us may have actually dealt with film. Film was a very mm-hmm. mechanical thing. Like that was not electronic at all for the most part. So a technologist is, is, is it's just kind of, I'm sure there are other like healthcare and banking. I'm sure there are technologists in those industries as well, because everything is so technology driven, but that's, it feels like that's just a really new title. I agree. And there, it's interesting, right, to, to think about the difference between engineer and technologist. They cross over a lot, I think. But then there's also worlds where I think technologist becomes more of a flexible term, whereas engineer has a very specific uh, background to it. It's a great point. Yeah. And a technologist can come from many different sides of things. And you, there is no wrong way to be a technologist, I don't think. Well, I hope that everybody um, who's been listening here, it's, it, there's some really good stuff to take away from this from this chat. I think, you know, partly because it is such a sort of a new, a new sort of role. But um, I think one that in a technology-driven world with our smartphones and computers, and we're just so inundated with technology every day. I mean, I love, I love the idea that someone could take their love, you know, even if it's just like the love of their smartphone. So, you know what, I, I'm so good with this thing. You know, how can I, how can I make a career in my love of movies, my love of television? That's not, you know, that traditional thing, like you said, writer, director, editor, producer, those are such, you know, film school forward roles. I like the idea that perhaps, you know, there's more out there uh, than just, you know, just, the, and, and there are, watch the credits grow by and Lord have mercy. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot, of, many of them tech, technology driven for sure. Yeah. Before we wrap up, the one thing that I, I will say is that it, it uh, another production side role that that can be similar to this would be the DIT, the digital imaging technician. Oh, we yes. work a very uh, important uh, role. Yes, very important role, and it's a role that production technologists, especially with the way that Netflix works, we work very very closely with them. So that could be another route to to either a technologist at a facility being a stepping stone to or from. I've seen DITs go both ways, decide that they're done with set and go more into a technologist, production technologist role. And then I've seen production technologists say, you know what? I'd rather just be on set, and it, it that so those those are, that's another avenue as well. But yeah, that's that's a that's a good one because the DIT is so technically oriented, like it is almost it seems like a hundred percent a technical position and relatively new, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the lifespan of a um of, of filmmaking. Um, I don't want to minimize Michael's role as a technologist because Michael, you also are a technologist. Like that's that's you're you're, you're that's kind of how you sell yourself. A creative technologist is is kind of the term I adopted probably a decade or so ago because I couldn't find anything, a, a title that was appropriate. And also I felt that the term engineer, to me, echoed back to having classical education like electrical engineering or aerospace engineering. It, it, it felt like I needed to have a degree in that and having a, a degree in post-production with a concentration in sound, I, I guess I felt like a poser. 
at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but I think this speaks to the, there's no wrong way to be a technologist. Well, speaking of cool technology and technologists, we normally, Stacey, do one cool thing where we talk about what we found interesting in this past week, uh, this past few weeks. If you don't mind, I'll jump in and go first. Uh, My one cool thing is something called Pinocchio. P-I-N-O-K-I-O. So that's a book, Michael, and a movie and a story. It's spelled differently, though. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yes. So those of us who have been interested in, in AI are probably familiar with all the different tools that you can find on GitHub right? Uh, GitHub repo, whether it's face swapping, whether it's text to image like you've done with MidJourney, whether it's audio cloning, all of these different tools that are still in beta that are being developed freely in the community. And everyone is focusing on getting it to function more than having a interface, right? A nice polished interface. But that means there's a barrier to entry because a lot of folks don't know, as you mentioned, Stacey, they don't know how to code. They don't know how to run Python. They don't know how to do things at a prompt. So uh, what Pinocchio does is it takes all of these disparate AI tools and puts them in one area and allows you to run them locally through a web interface without having to know how to code. And so there are a dozen or so different applications that you can run in Pinocchio, which is essentially a web browser that will allow you to run AI tools locally. And it's not just one service that clones your voice. It'll be three or four services that clone your voice. It'll be text to uh, image or text to video. So you can kind of see where we are right now as a snapshot in time, but you can also start using these tools to better enhance what you're doing. And and in the show notes, we'll put a link to that so you can download it. It's free. Uh, You still got to know a little bit under the hood, but it's vastly easier than having to download your own GitHub repo and fire up Docker or do things via command line uh it all has buttons for you to use so we'll put that, we'll put that in the show notes well i don't even know what docker is i think i used to have some pants that were dockers or maybe that was shoes i, 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 I can't remember um <laughs> michael's always teaching us good ai stuff um so my one cool thing I, I my stuff is always post related this one is specifically for the adobe creative cloud users out there in the creative cloud world it's um, This comes from uh, Knights of the Editing Table. It's a guy who programs mainly Premiere Pro extensions that does magical things. Like if you're a Premiere user and you don't have Excalibur, then you must go purchase it right now. But it came out with a new extension that works with pretty much all the, uh, the Creative Cloud apps that can take extensions, and it's called Chronicler. Chronicler. And what it does, it will actually time track your elements in your uh, Adobe application you're working in. I think I'm in Premiere, thinking about After Effects, down to a very micro level, such as like, here's how long you've worked in this project. Here's how long you've worked in this sequence. Here's how long you've been worked in this element. And what I like about it is, as a freelancer who often builds by the hour, or even at a flat rate job, I calculate my hours, is I have a time tracking tool that I use that's it's on my phone, it's on it's in the cloud, and it's it's on my Mac. Like, but I tr- have to sometimes really make lots of different tasks for a single job. 
because I want to be able to sort of track that stuff. But with Chronicler, the way it tracks your elements in Premiere specifically, I can go back and see, hey, I spent, you know, six hours on the open of this show because that's its own sequence. And then when I put that into the full show, I spent, you know, 42 hours on the full show. And combining that with my time tracking app, I can actually see like, wow, I'm showing I spent nine hours working on this job today, but Chronicler shows me I only spent six. So what was those other three hours? Did I forget to turn my clock off at lunch? Did I spend literally three hours surfing internet and Twitter? You know, like it's it's kind of, it's been a bit of an eye opener when I compare that tracking within Premiere to what I do myself. And it's a $25 little tool. You can export stuff as a CSV. You hit Knights of the Editing Table, link below. And if you're an Adobe user, especially a Premiere user, an editor, um, try out Chronicler and you may be able to track your time uh, a little bit better. With that, Stacey, I'm going to throw it to you for your one cool thing or potentially one, two cool things. Yeah, I I, I do have two. I hope that's okay. Um, that's perfectly but okay. But I thought they're, they're not necessarily brand new, but I thought since I was bringing some new things to the table as far as careers in post and, and production technology that I would share one tool that I use probably every day, maybe not every day, but a lot. And it's an app, uh, an iOS app called Camera Kit. It is an application that gives you a lot of the information for different cameras. You can figure out what uh, resolutions and what codecs each camera model uses from Sony, Canon, Ari, Red, and it also will help you figure out storage space. One thing that productions are always clamoring for is, is storage space. So, oh, yes. right? And, and being able to tell productions, look, this is going to be 800 gigabytes an hour, that gives them an understanding of how much storage they will need for an entire production. So uh, we'll have the, a link in, in the show notes for that app that I find very helpful as a technologist, for sure. And then another Another app that I use that's not necessarily about production technology is one uh, that I, I got a couple months ago called Shift. I don't know if either of you have heard of Shift, but it is an I work app. for Shift. Really? Not, yeah. <laughs> different it's, Shift. It's different, a different Shift. Okay. Uh, I had a lot but, of cars in my life that I had to shift, and they're so much fun right? to drive, but... But so I, I'm a part of a lot of different uh, organizations and one of them communicates via WhatsApp. One of them communicates via Discord. Another one is, you know, I have a different, two different Gmails. And what this app does is make it easy to shift between all of those things. It's one singular app with integrations to all of these services. Oh, I love so this idea. on my desktop, I just open shift and then all my notifications are in one place and I just tab between the different services. It's really helped streamline my communication during a day. So I, I'm not looking in 12 places for uh, different communication between different groups of friends, different organizations I'm a part of. Uh, so we'll we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, you know, that's great. Considering what we just talked about with your being a connector as a technologist, there are probably so many different places where you have to keep track of chats and links and who, you know, what did I send to who and 
Wow. That, that, yeah, that's, um, that's actually a really nice recommendation. So we'll, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sign up for that as soon as we, um, as we hang up here. So <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's, su- it's super helpful. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us for this. It's like, um, you know, we, we did only have done one other interview since we started this podcast. Was it a year or so ago, Michael, a year and a half ago now? So we're, we're kind of, I, I love the idea that we can talk to interesting people um, doing interesting things. And I think that, you know, there's a editor interviews and DP interviews are kind of a dime a dozen out there these days. So I love this chat that we had with a, with a, with a technologist, a production technologist. You know, it's kind of the chat that we don't necessarily hear about a lot. So thank you for sharing with us your journey and uh, the good advice and everything, you know, continue bringing us good programming. That's what we want. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Like you said, you don't, you don't hear about this, that, that often. And I am totally honored, been a fan of the podcast, honored to be only the the second guest on the Alan Smithy podcast. (laughs) Well, we'll uh, you know what we may have you back later to sort of uh, you know catch up on where techno where, where technology is going. It has been it's a blast. Changing. Ever changing, Michael. Thanks again. Uh, we will see you soon. And until next time, everybody, we'll uh, see you on the next Alan Smithy Roundtable. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you, Scott. Thank you all. Thank you.